Well, church, as we get back to the book of Exodus, we are approaching an incredible section of Scripture, an incredible section of our Bibles, an incredible section in the book of Exodus. And I just know many of you, you've known that, right? Ever since the very first Sunday when we started the book of Exodus, you knew what was coming, right? You know what the book of Exodus is about. And with anticipation, this moment has been building. We're about to see what God does when God intervenes to deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt. And as I've been reading through this, and I'm trying to look at this as a whole, I'm trying to look at all 10 plagues, all 10 wonders, all 10 miracles. I'm trying to look at really the next six and a half chapters as a whole in my mind and try and wrap it all up. And, and I'm going to tell you, even knowing what was going to happen, even expecting what is going to happen, because I, I know what the book of Exodus is about, I've read it, I'm telling you, it's done something new in my heart that I really want, I want the same thing for you. And it's left me in this place that I didn't even really expect, but the one word that I would use to describe it is it's left me in awe. I am, I'm just simply in awe of the Lord our God. I'm in awe of who he is. I'm in awe in what he does. I'm in awe of how he does it. I'm in awe for the people whose sake he does what he does. And that's not only the children of Israel, but that's also us. I'm just in awe of the Lord our God. And when I think of awe, I think of this, and I, my phone is somewhere. I don't know, so you guys, can you change those slides for me? That's, that's kind of an eerie thought. Like, my phone is somewhere. I don't know. But I'm going to just put that out of my mind. But here's what I mean when I'm talking about awe. I'm meaning this, a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. There it is, Charlie. Where's it been? Not that I missed it. I mean, who cares? It's just a device, like whatever, right? Sorry, that, I'm not in awe of this phone. I use it for the remote to change the slides. Sometimes you're thinking, what's he texting right now? Like how, how sacrilegious is that guy? No, I, I use it as a remote. So that's what I'm doing here. But this is what I think about. I think of awe in this, in this kind of light. Think about this, this idea, a feeling of reverential respect. It means a feeling of admiration. It means looking upon one with great astonishment and respect because they are awesome, right? When I think of the Lord, our God, I look at him with reverential respect, with great reverence because he's awesome. And then I think about this one mixed with fear and wonder. If we're going to approach the Lord God with any capacity of understanding who he's revealed himself to be through his written, written word, it should bring with it the accompanying fear of who he is. It really should. The proverb is right. The beginning of wisdom, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. It's just a right response if we're going to be in awe of the Lord our God. And then the last characteristic here, it's wonder. And it's this idea that along with reverence and along with fear, there's something inside my soul when I think and meditate upon the Lord God that just fills my heart with wonder. We went, my, my family, I have some friends visiting. We, we went to the city and we're standing on the bridge and we're looking out and I'm looking at my kids and they're just like, it's wonder filling their eyes. And that's what I want every single one of our hearts. When we think about who God is, when we read through the text of what God has done, I want there to be a wonder that can truly only be fulfilled in the awe defined by God's person, by his being, by his countenance, by his reputation, by what he has done as he's interacted with his people, both redeeming the children of Israel and redeeming us through faith in Jesus. 
So awe is what we're going to be talking about. And what I want to do is for the next six weeks, I want to try and look at this as a kind of a series within a series. I want to try and make sure that all these plagues are connected in the capacity, all pointing to this, all pointing to awe in some capacity of the Lord, awe in who he is. And that's what it's been created in me. And I really want that to be in you as well, that God is the source and the finality of all things awe. He's the complete definition of awe. So six weeks, six parts culminating on Easter Sunday, we'll kind of wrap up the last plague, the plague of the firstborn, where we get Passover. And how fitting is that going to be on Resurrection Sunday when we celebrate the raising from the dead of the Lord Jesus, our Passover lamb? So that's where we're going. That's kind of what's happening over the next six weeks. Now, I had all this in mind. I was ready to bite off some plagues, and then the Lord kind of slowed me down. So we're going to get into some cool supernatural things today, but not the first plague yet. So keep reading ahead and keep rereading ahead. But that's, that's where we're going. Now, as we approach this here this morning, we have a genealogy. As we pick back up in the text, uh, Exodus chapter 6 here, where we left off last week, we have a genealogy of, of Moses and Aaron. And I know looking out there, I know people aren't like, yes, a genealogy. I love genealogy. I love when we go through, we're going to go through it quickly and it's going to be painless. I promise you. But I want you to know it's also purposeful. Some of us kind of think, well, this is completely out of place and breaking up the amazing narrative that I wanted to find out more about, but it's purposeful. And I'm going to show you why. So let's read it and do our best not to hammer these names too bad. But it says this, verse 14, Exodus 6, 14 says, These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the families of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Yakin, Zohar, Shaul, and the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And these are the years of the life of Levi, 137. The sons of Gershom were Libni and Shimi, according to their families. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi, these are the families of Levi according to their generations. Now, Amram took for himself Yochaved, his father's sister, as wife. She bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elizaphan, and Zerthi. Aaron took to himself Elisheba, daughter of Amminadab, sister of Nashon, as wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar. And the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Puthiel as wife, and she bore him Phinehas. And these are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites according to their families. But listen, these are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. Now, I think that this is powerful in that we get the idea here that some people within the children of Israel need to know this. 
right? Remember what happened last week. Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh for the very first time. And they're going to bring word, hey, the Lord God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. And remember, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I don't know him. Why am I going to obey and let the people go? He says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then what happens, remember, he says, no more straw to make brick. You're going to continue to have to make that high quota of those brick. And you're not going to get the aid of adding straw as a binding agent. In other words, he kept their workload the same and he took away some of the materials that they needed to complete that work. He made it a lot harder. And the children of Israel, we are told they are left in anguish and in a greater broken spirit after that than they were before, right? Already living in great oppression, under heavy affliction, under the heavy hand of Pharaoh, and now things have just got worse. So somebody in camp is saying, who do Aaron and Moses think they are? Where do they get the idea that we wanted them to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let us go, right? They've only made things worse. And so picture that in a nation of two million plus people, word is starting to spread that there's some guy named Aaron and some guy named Moses who are causing a lot of problems. So here comes this genealogy to answer the question of who these two people are. The Lord's going to give us this order, really kind of a partial order, only covering briefly the first three sons of Jacob, who's renamed Israel. So we get Reuben, the firstborn. Then we get Simeon, the second born, but it's all building up to talk about this third son named Levi. Now, church, this is important because this is going to be the line, right? It is going to be from the Levites that the ministers and the priests and all those who are going to serve God in and around and through the tabernacle and then the temple as intercessors between God and man, serving him through offering and sacrifice, all those necessary things that God is setting up, which will temporarily make atonement for the sins of the people. But I want you to think about that. He hasn't done that yet, but he's setting it up with Moses and Aaron. So just think about as we unpack some of these things that we know, this is going to be the Levite's job to stand in the gap before the people and God. They're going to be the ones who are going to do the work in between. So the people are going to come to the Levites. The Levites are, there, are then going to go before the Lord. But Aaron's family is going to be set apart even more so. They're going to be the, the line of the priest. The high priest is going to come through that Aaronic priesthood. They're going to come through the line of Aaron. So think about what we're being told here. All this is kind of beginning, and maybe it's, it's not all that important to you, but it's very important to the children of Israel here at this point because they're saying, we want to know the pedigree, the credentials, who these people really are. And the Lord's like, oh, I know who they are. They're of the tribe of Levi, the tribe that has been called, set apart, appointed by God himself to do the work of the ministry. So where did they come up with that idea? They got it from the Lord because this is what God is going to do. So just note that it starts right here from Levi through Kohath, through Amram, that's the father of Aaron and Moses, through Jochebed, their mother. I love that she's mentioned there because we've seen the faithfulness of her early on in the book of Exodus. Come Aaron and Moses. Now note that Aaron is the firstborn of Amram. Aaron is Moses' older brother. Subtle, but it's important to know when we think about the line really here is introducing us to Aaron more so than Moses. Right? It's not going to mention any of Moses' sons, but it's going to mention several of Aaron's sons, even to Aaron's grandson, because he's going to be the line of the high priest. So they're, again, introducing him to the people. We want you to know who they are. Now, some of these names we know, and you can circle them. I put verses in your study guide for you to look at later. 
because Aaron's sons give us some great teaching examples. Nadab and Abihu, we should know those two names. Read about them later. Look at those contextual verses. And then Phineas, Aaron's grandson. That guy is a rad guy. The zeal of the Lord. He's going to do things in his zeal for the Lord that God is going to say, I've accounted to him as righteousness. You read about it, you're like, that's gnarly. But it's what God says is an act of righteousness. So I, again, later look at those and see contextually But some of these other names all lead up to what is being said here in verse 26. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. Verse 26, this is that same Aaron and Moses. Now, a population of two plus million people here. Maybe there's a few Aaron's. Right? There's a few Brian's in the congregation. I mean, that happens. We're, we're, not, we're not two million plus people. So there's maybe a few Aaron's, a few Moses's, but they're saying, no, these two guys are these guys. This is that Aaron. This is that Moses. They are Levites. They are full-blooded Hebrews. This gives them the right. Now, we understand that for Aaron, who's been in Egypt the whole time, but think about how important that is for Moses. Moses, for the, the 80 years of his life, for the first 40 years, he's been he, he was raised the prince of Egypt in the palace in Egypt, but not with the Hebrew people, separated from them. And then he's got a brief little moment, 40 more years in the desert of Midian, again, away from the Hebrew people. And now he's coming back on the scene thinking, who's this guy? And this genealogy says he's a full-blooded Hebrew of the tribe of Levi, whom God has called and chosen and appointed and sent to be used as an instrument of deliverance. So again, to all of us here, this genealogy probably doesn't mean a whole lot. But to everybody here, to validate the line and the lineage of Aaron and Moses, it's putting to rest a lot of those questions that are starting to surface. And they're going to submit saying, yes, this is what God is going to do. We're going to submit to it, at least for a little while, because there's going to be that other name in there named Korah, who's going to rebel against God's authority as established by Moses and Aaron. And if you're kind of thinking that's a good idea, it's not because the earth is going to open up and swallow Korah and his buddies. And that's not something I want to be a part of. Right. But that's going to happen. I put that reference in your verse or your study guide. As well, But for that, that's sufficient to see this is what this genealogy is for. It's just authenticating who they are so they can move past asking the questions of why are they going to speak before us? Because this is God's plan. This is God's idea. They're the Levites, the very ones who've been sent to go before and represent God before the people. So that's what's happening here. Verse 28 says, And it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses... In the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. So you shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. 
And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, before we start kind of expositing this here in chapter seven, verses four and five, we see God's reasoning or maybe his intents or his purpose for why he's going to do what he's going to do through the plagues. We'll talk about this more as we close, but I want us to understand this isn't just God saying, hey, world, check out how great and powerful I am. That's not the only thing that he's doing through the plagues. And we see it here. So there's three things, note takers, there's three things that God is doing with purpose as he does what he does through the plagues, the wonders, and the signs. Number one is he is rescuing his people from Egypt. He's delivering them out of bondage, right? That's what he's doing. Number two, we're going to see he's going to bring judgment upon Egypt for their oppressive actions towards the the nation of Israel. God sent them there as an area of deliverance from a famine and certainly to incubate. He did not send them there to be killed in a genocidal rage. He didn't send them for, for the pharaohs to kill their babies. That's not what he sent them there for. And God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And this is what God is going to do upon the Egyptians. So it's an act of deliverance. It's also an act of judgment, justice from the Lord God of heaven and earth. And then number three, it is so all of Egypt will know, all of Israel will know, all the world will know who the Lord God is and that he is greater than all the gods and idols that are combined in the land of Egypt and anywhere else. There's no other God besides him, right? It's, it's to create awe forever of what God alone is capable of doing. So just kind of note that, set that aside. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come, but I wanted just to touch that because we see it here in these verses. But back to this narrative here, in between the first meeting with Pharaoh that we talked about last week in chapter five and the second meeting that we're about to see here in chapter seven, notice that God has to give Moses another little pep talk, right? He, he's going to come back to Moses again. I mean, this is after the burning bush. This is after all the signs that he gave Moses. He's coming back. And he says, go back and speak to Pharaoh. But Moses says for the third time and picture, he says, behold, he tells the Lord this, Lord, behold, like, Lord, look, he's like, look, I can't talk as well. Whatever he does, look, look at my lips, Lord. I can't speak as well as you think I can speak. I'm not eloquent enough. This is the same God who says, I know, Moses, I created your mouth, right? But he's saying, Lord, look, look at my inadequacies. Look at my weaknesses. Please don't make me go. He's doing this for the third time, church. Three times he's made this same contention before the Lord. And I want you to see two things about that. Number one, we do not need another example in our Bibles, although we have a whole lot of them. We do not need another example of the patience and long suffering of the Lord our God. This is the third time Moses has come up with the same weak excuse. And God doesn't just wipe him out, snuff him out, or whatever other thing you think he ought to do. Our God is gracious and long-suffering and patient, and that's a conviction to me because I want to be more like him. I want to be more like him when my kids ask for that thing again or again, or my precious wife or whatever. I want to be gracious. I want to be loving and long-suffering like the Lord our God. So that's number one. We got It's an incredible example of the life of Moses, how patient our God is. But here's the second one. I want you to see that what you feel, what we feel are our inadequacies and weaknesses, they are not a valid excuse to not do what God has called us to do. All right, you gotta put that to bed, right? Nobody's gonna question Moses really, 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 really feels he's inadequate for that, right? We all agree with that. He said it three times, I can't do this. He believes he's inadequate. 
And the Lord says, I'm not going to use your weakness as a valid excuse to disobey or not do what I'm calling you to do. And I want you just to take a minute to just think about that. Some are thinking right now, my weakness is patience with my kids or, or my weakness is, is boldness in community or my weakness is just walking daily. Whatever your weakness is, you're saying, well, I can't do that. Lord, what you're asking me to do, I can't do that. And he's saying, I know, I know you can't. We're not talking about what you can't. We're talking about what I can. This whole thing is I am the Lord. That's what God has said to Moses. That's his answer. I don't, we're not talking about what you aren't. We're talking about who I am, what I'm able to do. And there is an absolute fundamental truth about the Bible that, that God represents himself to be and the inadequacies and the weaknesses of human beings. It's, it's, it's coinciding with one another. Our weaknesses can be his strengths if we take our weakness and turn it into dependence upon him. It's amazing that we see here Moses plead with the Lord three times. And it reminds me of another godly man who pleads with the Lord three times for something that he feels is an inadequacy. The apostle Paul, a thorn in his, in his flesh, a weakness that he says is buffeting him, trying to keep him quiet. Pleads with the Lord three times. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. You know, the Lord says, no, because in your weakness, I'm going to show you my strength. My grace is sufficient for you. So I want you to think about that. Whatever your weakness, whatever you think your inadequacy is, that's an invitation to tap into God's power. Paul's gonna say, I boast in my infirmities. He's gonna say, in essence, I wish I recognized that I was 100% weak 100% of the time. Because then I would know I could be 100% dependent upon the Lord and receive 100% of his strength 100% of the time. Right? Our issue is sometimes we think we're strong. That's our main issue. Sometimes we think I can do it. Oh, that we would all be recognized how dependent we really are for the Lord to do anything good with us. So note that about Moses. Even though we've seen this three times, God is still going to use it and he's going to say, Moses, I know who you are, but don't you remember who I am? I am awe-defined. I am almighty God. I am your strength. I am your sustenance. My grace is sufficient for you. I am able to do what you are not. Trust me and obey. And that's a word for all of us. I mean, so much so myself included, but a word to all of us. Meet some of those things in the same capacity. So he tells him again, Moses, go. I'm going to do this. This is going to be a work. He gives him something specific here. He says, Moses, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And then he says, Aaron is going to be your prophet. But what he says here, he says, Moses, what I'm doing here is I'm sending you before Pharaoh as my representative. You're going to step in and before Pharaoh and before Pharaoh, he's going to see you as God. And it's Elohim. You're going to see, he's going to see you as an extension of me. That's what he's saying to him. And then Aaron is going to be your mouthpiece like a prophet. But I want you just to picture this because it's beautiful and it's something we see all throughout the text as well. What he's saying is, I'm going to send you, Moses, a human being to be an instrument as a part of my divine plan. Does that sound familiar, right? I mean, I'm going to send you as an ambassador out into this world to represent me. And then I'm going to use another human being to be my mouthpiece to speak what I want to speak. It's amazing that we see this shadow right here, but there's a great picture that we can make of Jesus being another clothing himself in humanity, fully God, fully man, but then going to represent, to be God among the people, Emmanuel, God with us, and fully do what he needs to do to the prince of the power of this world and defeat him, 
Satan, who I'm speaking of, and ultimately show himself to be victorious. There's a shadow there that we see here in Moses, but there's another shadow that applies to us. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are those sent with a message. We are those who go before being Christ, representing Christ to the people around us. Some of us, we're the most Jesus that they're ever going to see. And we get to be that. That's a gift. That's a blessing. We want to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. But that's what he's setting up here, using instruments to do his divine work, just like he does. In fact, this church, we're called the body of Christ. How radical is that, right? We're the hands and the feet of Jesus. We're the body of Christ. He's the head. He's the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. But we're extensions of his very body. When he wants to do something in our communities, in our cities, in our families, in our homes, he uses the body of Christ to do that, us. So think about that same type of thing. The pattern is being set up here, but that's what's going on here. But notice this part. Verse six says, then Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. And that right there is a pretty monumental verse. This seems to be the moment where Aaron and Moses, Moses specifically puts to bed this whole Lord. I don't speak eloquently enough. He's finally going to say, yes, Lord, fine. I trust you. And I'm going to obey. So he did so and commanded. From this point until all the plagues, until they get to the other side of that Red Sea, he's going to trust the Lord and say whatever God wants him to say and do whatever God wants him to do. He's going to fully obey. So God finally gets his man to the place where he wants to be. And I hope that's encouraging to you. That's encouraging to me. God does patiently endure to get us back to the place. So this pep talk is effective. Moses is fired up again. But I absolutely love this part. Moses has been fired up before, hasn't he? And then he's gone out and done it and the circumstances haven't gone the way he expected them to go. And then we're back to another pep talk. So even though the Lord says, this is who I am, this is what I'm gonna do, notice that he also shares with Moses the tough news. He tells him again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's going to harden his own heart. It's gonna lead to me multiplying my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Verse four, Pharaoh will not heed you. He's saying, Moses, please, no selective listening this time, Moses. Don't miss it again this time, Moses. I'm telling you again beforehand, success is not gonna come easy. I don't want you thinking you're gonna now go back to Pharaoh for the second time and lickety split, boom, deliverance for all your friends. That's not what it's gonna be. It's gonna take time. We know as we study through this, it's gonna be between eight and 10 months from the time of the year that the the Nile is going to be afflicted until the plague of the firstborn in April. It's almost, it's about eight to 10 months. So think about that, eight to 10, these plagues aren't gonna come just day after day after day. There's gonna be some time. So 10 plagues, 10 miracles, 10 signs, eight to 10 months. It's gonna take some time. And things are gonna be tough, no straw for brick. All those different things are gonna be going on. But God tells him beforehand. And I just love that. Don't think it's gonna be easy. Don't forget who I am. No, I'm gonna be with you. It gets worse before it gets better, but it will get better. So he's telling him again. I just, I just love that. God doesn't, God doesn't give us half truths. God doesn't give us just the good news with also, also with, with, with in addition preparing us for the difficult at the same time. So we see that again here as well. Moving on, there's just one more thing I want to point out here. I want to touch on this. This last verse in, in this section here, verse seven says, and Moses was 80 years old 
and Aaron, 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. And, and I want you just to see this. I know that in this day and age, we're seeing people here in this Exodus time period, we're seeing people living longer lives, right? We were just told Levi and Gershom, they're 137. One of those other guys is like 133. So I, I don't want to take away, yes, they're, they're aging a little slower in this time period. But listen closely to this. I don't want to take anything away from the fact that Moses and Aaron are senior citizens at this point in their life. And I want to take that very, very seriously because I want you to know that there is this fallacy in the minds of some people that as we approach 80, our years of usefulness, our years of being used by God, our ability to serve him in a full capacity starts to diminish. That our best years are behind us, that our life's work, whatever it was, has already been completed and it's time to just put it in cruise control and just finish out however be it may. And I'm telling you, read your Bibles. That's not what Aaron and Moses do. And I thank God that's not what Moses and Aaron do. Their best years, their best ministry days are still ahead of them at 80 and 83. God is going to use them powerfully at 80 and 83. What we love the most about these two guys' life, minus the whole golden calf situation, is after 80 and 83. And so I want you to understand that as we approach that, don't believe the lie that God is finished with you. I promise you this. When God's finished with you, you're going to be with him. We're going to be with him. If we're still here, God still has something for you. And you are a blessing. I love this proverb. Look at this proverb. It's one of my favorites, especially as my you know, hair starts to change a little bit here too. But it says, the glory of young men is their strength. And the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Proverbs 20, 29. So the, the, the strength, the, the, the glory of a young man or a young woman is their strength. And praise the Lord for that, right? Use that for the glory of the Lord. But the splendor, it is a splendiferous thing. That's a real word. To have a head of gray hair because God has given you old age and wisdom to understand things that other people can't. Listen, the church needs both. Both. And praise God that we have both. But I just want you to understand that don't even think for a second that we get a coast at any time in our lives. We keep pressing into Jesus. We keep seeking the Lord for what he has for us next. We keep saying, God, I am here. I am yours. Use me for your glory. And he will because he bought you with a precious price and desires to use you for his good pleasure. So let the word of God be true. Read your Bible. See this incredible example. And let's keep pressing into the Lord. And just a real quick, quick FYI for all of us. All of our best days are still ahead of us, right? All of our best days. There's going to be a time where we are literally, physically with Jesus in his presence forever. That's the best day that is still yet to come. There's going to be so many things ahead of us. So don't think that those were the best days. The best days are still ahead. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. Verse 8 says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, note plural, and the magicians of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments. 
For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. So this section starts off with the Lord kind of giving Moses and Aaron a play-by-play. He's saying, here's what's going to happen next. You're going to go in before Pharaoh. And when you go in there, he's going to ask for a sign. He's going to ask for your calling card. He's going to say, show us. You're claiming to, to represent the God of the Hebrews. Well, I want to see something that substantiates that this God of the Hebrews is really behind you. So show me a sign. And so God says, Moses, here's what you're going to do. You're going to tell Aaron to cast his rod on the ground. It's going to turn into a serpent. So the whole rod serpent trick, we've seen this before. Right? God told Moses to do the same thing before the elders of Israel. In fact, God told Moses to do the same thing at the burning bush. Remember, Moses sees it and flees away himself. Right? We've seen this. Here's the tricky part. The word that is used when God tells Moses to cast his rod down, it's the word nakash. And it literally means serpent. It's the word that is most often translated in our Bibles as the word snurpent. Sir, not snurpent. Serpent or snake. But here's the tricky part. In this instance, when God tells Moses concerning Aaron's rod, it's the word tanin. And it's just a little different. And and it's hard to translate because this word tanin in our English Bibles, in other places where it's found, it describes kind of the the action of what's going on. Like, Like hissing. Tanin is used for hissing. Or tanin is used for dragon. Tanin is used for monster. Or tanin is also used for a servant, but it's just, it's tricky. It's kind of an interesting situation. It leads to seeing what's really going on here. Listen, I don't know. I know it's weird. I'm just telling you what the Bible says here. The most, the most popular approach to this is that when Aaron throws his rod down, it turns into a dangerous, venomous, hissing, monstrous cobra, right? But we don't know exactly what that looks like. There's some speculation. It makes sense to me because we talked about earlier. Remember Pharaoh? You can see this. Google King Tutankhamun's headdress. And you're going to see the headdress that the pharaohs would wear had a cobra on the front of it. Right? It was a god. It was an, a lowercase g god, an idol synonymous with Egypt. So it makes sense to me that he throws it down. It turns into a cobra, which is kind of showing, hey, that thing you wear on your head Yeah, God is more powerful than that. God is the real power behind all power, right? So here's what's going on. So again, you kind of wrestle this out, but that's kind of the situation that is being presented here. But it would certainly get some people's attention. It would get Aaron's attention. It would have gotten Pharaoh's attention. But here's what happens. Pharaoh is then going to call in his wise men. I want you to see that wise men, it's plural. He doesn't call in his wise man. He calls in his wise men. So at the very least, there's two. And then he calls in a separate category of people, sorcerers, plural. So again, worst case, there's four, right, to make it plural. And they're going to throw their rods down, and they're going to turn into serpents, tenin, same exact word that is used for Aaron's rod, what it turns into. And now you got a room full, again, worst case, five snakes, hissing, dangerous. Listen, that's five snakes, too many for me in any room that I'm in, by the way. But that's what's going on. Now, before we talk about what, what happens here, the question gets ar- arise, how, how do they do that? How do Pharaoh's wise men, Pharaoh's sorcerers, who are a part of a Pharaoh who has already said, I don't know the Lord, and they don't, where do they get the power to cast down their rods and they turn into serpents as well? And you read a whole bunch of stuff about this. It was, just, it was a magic trick. 
It was a a sleight of hand. They had enchanted actual snakes or kind of lured them to sleep and they were holding them and it looked like a stick, but really it was a snake. Listen, what happened there? I don't believe any of that nonsense. I believe this is demonic power that these two or three or four wise men are tapping into to be able to copy, counterfeit to some degree. They're not the same a miracle and we see that, but to some degree, what God is able to do through Aaron and Moses' rod. But this is demonic power. Now, some of you are thinking, what? Listen, demons and angels are real. The Bible testifies to their existence. Jesus affirms and testifies to their existence. Paul, when he writes his letters, testifies to their existence. There is a spiritual realm. There is a spiritual world. Not everything that is able to have some power over this created physical world is, is good, right? There's some demonic power. And I want you to understand that. We, we certainly need to understand that because when we see some of these miracles or signs or wonders, just because there's a miracle or a sign, that doesn't prove it was from God. Just the mere essence of, wow, that was, a, that was an amazing thing. I can't explain. That looks supernatural. Just because that happened doesn't mean it's from God. We have to ask the question, where does the sign point me to? Where does the sign lead me to? Who gets the glory from that sign that was just performed, right? Who do you want me to, who do you want me to thank? Who do you want me to appreciate? Who do you want me to exalt? Who do you want me to be in awe after that miracle? And listen, if it's not the Lord Jesus, if it's not the Lord Jesus alone, it's not from the Lord. We are not to be those people who are saying, show me a sign. Oh, I want to see a sign. Show me a sign. We are those people who say, we've already seen the sign. We've seen the empty tomb. We've seen the crucified, resurrected, risen Lord Jesus. And that's all the sign I need. The tomb is empty. Jesus rose from the grave. Now listen, that doesn't mean to say that there aren't other miracles and signs that God does do. He does. But we're not to be those looking for them. We're to allow the Lord to lead as he's going to lead. But I want us to understand that any sign that is performed by the Lord, as we read, as we study through the book of Acts, it is a signpost that should be on the road, the trajectory that is leading us towards Jesus. It should be pointing to who he is. If it's not, that is a lying sign and wonder performed by some demonic power. Now, where do we get that? Why is this important? Well, it's important because our world that we live in, it is currently scheduled to be deceived by lying signs and wonders. Do you know that? Like there is going to be an attempt on every single one of our faith, the elect, by a lying sign and wonder from Satan himself and his demonic power. Listen to what Jesus tells us. This is Jesus' own words. Mark 13, 21 through 23, he says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. The Apostle Paul says this, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. The coming of the lawless one, this is the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is according to the what? Working of Satan with what? All power, signs, and lying wonders. Right? It's going to happen. Jesus said it. Paul affirmed it's going to happen. So I just share this. Say, don't be wowed by the fact that there's a sign or a miracle. Be, be discerning 
who and what it's pointing to. Be discerning what is the, what is the foundational floor or what's the finality of that sign. These wise men, these sorcerers, these magicians in Egypt, they're able to do a sign. And it's almost able to duplicate the same thing. But I say almost because Satan is not equal to God. He is a created being. He has some power, but no power in comparison to the Lord God himself. So when he, when he replicates some of these things, when he counterfeits some of these things, he's able to replicate these, these serpents just like God did through Aaron's rod. But they're a lesser degree. They look the same on the outside. But what happens in the end? The, the rod of God and the serpent that God brings through Aaron's rod, it is able to devour all the other snakes. Don't think that there was like a one-by-one one death match one at a time. Devour all of the snakes like immediately. Picture, the, picture Aaron's rod, that snake with like a toothpick in its mouth, kind of hiccups and belching because quickly just devoured all of them. And then Aaron is able to boldly, calmly walk over, grab that snake by the tail, pick it up, and it turns back into a rod again. And I picture all those sorcerers and magicians just like, I don't have a rod anymore. One leaning over saying, man, I got that rod for my birthday. The other guy saying, I etched my name in that rod. And I got, I got no more rod. They are godless. They are rodless. They are powerless. And now they're speechless because they don't have anything if they don't have the Lord. Right? Demonic power is no match for the Lord. Think of, think of darkness. How fast does darkness fly away when you flip on the light? That's the battle that takes place when God intervenes in a situation like this. So devours them. Now what's amazing is Pharaoh's witnessing all this. Moses and Aaron are too, but Pharaoh's witnessing all this. How does Pharaoh respond to this first miraculous encounter? The sign that he asked for, verse 13 says, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So the situation ends with Pharaoh hardening his heart, just like God said he was going to do, and perpetuating what we're about to read, the 10 signs, the 10 plagues, those 10 miracles that God is going to do. So keep reading ahead. We're not going to get into those this morning, but I want to close this out to try and come back to this idea. As we're starting to see God reveal himself, reveal himself in power, reveal himself on behalf of his people, answer prayers that he's hearing, the cries of their affliction that he sees and he hears and he knows, I want to come back to this idea of, of awe defined. And I want us to look at this definition again, and I want us to think awe, a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. And I want to ask you, as you look at this and you think about this for yourself, I want, I want to ask you, what what do you consider awe-worthy in your life? What builds this kind of feeling in your heart? Now, I want you to listen to this. I'm, this is not a trick question because if we're honest with ourselves, and we should be, listen, a lot of things do, right? A lot of things do. Like my wife gives me a feeling of awe, her love, her compassion, her resilience. She's awesome. I, I love my wife in awe. My kids do. Their capacity to pick up things, their capacity to learn things, their capacity to forget things leaves me in awe. Wow. Right? But I go to Yosemite, and I, I see El Cap, and I, I see Half Dome, and I see the, the tunnel view. I'm in awe. It's, it's amazing. It really is It's breathtaking. We went to the Golden Gate Bridge, and I look around. I see the feats of, of incredible engineers, and they, I'm in awe. That's, that's brilliant. The coastal lines, the raging rivers, the, the oceans, the animals. I mean, I'm thinking about there's so many different things. I, I go to a drag race and I watch a car go by with a ton of horsepower and it's like, 
that leaves me in awe. Like, whoa, like I, that's powerful, right? A lot of things do. And for you, I think that's true. There's a lot of things, stars, the moon, the sun, puppies, kittens, birds, bugs, books, buildings, art, music, movies, magazines, a lot of things do, right? I'm not trying to shame anybody for agreeing with that. Yeah, a lot of things make me in awe. But when I think about this, if we stop at any of those things that I just listed as awe-defined or as the finality of my awe, we're missing the Lord. We're missing the one who is the final culmination of all things awe-worthy. We're missing the one who's the greatest of all. It really should progress. When I go to Yosemite or I see some of those things that I list, I go, I go that's amazing. God, you're amazing. When I think of my wife, I go, God, you're amazing. No, God's amazing, right? You just have to lift your eyes a little higher to the highest point that they can be lifted. The name above all names, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, just lift it up. Whenever, whenever something in this world that God created, I'm, I'm speaking the creation world, God created an awesome world and he's placed us to live in it. And all those things are supposed to be indivis- invisible attributes that point us to the Lord. They say, God, you are awesome. And I bring all this up as we kind of close down because the real problem of Pharaoh's heart is he is in awe of the wrong things. That's his real issue. And there's people in our lives, their real issue is what makes them feel all these emotions is just not the Lord and they've stopped there. But think about it for Pharaoh for a second. He's in awe of Egypt, of, of what his hands have made or what he's ordered other hands to make, what his mind has comprehended. He's in awe of himself. And so God is going to slowly, subtly, through this account, show Pharaoh, show all of Egypt, show all of Israel, show all of us how much greater he is than all those things that Pharaoh is in awe of. Think about that. All that we're going to see, they worship the Nile River. God's going to strike it with blood and say, don't worship the Nile. I'm greater than the Nile. They believe Pharaoh is a God and Pharaoh is going to be crushed through this whole situation. And they're going to say, don't worship a man. Don't worship Pharaoh. Don't worship a person. Don't worship a woman, right? They've been created by God. They're not as great as the great I am, the creator himself. So whatever it is for your life, as you just kind of think about awe, maybe you need to lift your eyes a little higher. Maybe you need to lift your eyes to the highest place you can lift them. Because then you find the one who's truly sitting on the throne, the one who is responsible for all these things, holding all these things together. And now you find yourself saying, you know what? God really is awe-defined. He's really the finality of all these emotions, and he's the one that I really want to pour them out upon. And that's why we come to the Lord. That's why we read his word. That's why we want to share him, because he's awe-inspiring. He's awesome. And that's what I hope through these next five weeks now, we start to see God sow that into our hearts and lives. Let him be awesome. Let him change our perspectives. Let him take some of those things that maybe we've elevated a little too high and let him be seated alone in the highest seat of honor that only he is deserving. Amen?